Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Una Osili, the uh, Associate Dean for Research and International Programs, also a professor of economics and philanthropic studies. Uh, boy, that, I, you've got more titles. I won't go on with all of them. But uh, Dr. Osili, thank you so much for taking the time. A pleasure. Thank you for um, having me on your show, on your program. Uh, there are so many people that are so compelled and interested in what's happening in philanthropic giving these days, so many good mission-based organizations out there. But I asked for a little bit of your time as you were part of a Time Magazine article recently, kind of looking forward into what's changing and what should we be thinking about differently. And uh, you began the conversation in that article, and you've had other work about this that I, I really wanted to bring up, about this idea of a newer element to what we used to think of as uh, time, treasure, and talent as ways to give. And it was sort of shorthanded in the article as testimony, but it's a little bit more about uh, other pieces than that. Can you describe what you mean when people are giving in a way that kind of adds another T to our time, treasure, and talent? So thanks so much for that question. As you've noted, philanthropy is multidimensional, it's complex, and it's deeply personal. At the Lilly Family School, we have a definition that we use often that philanthropy is private action for the public good. In other words, when individuals give of their time, of their talent, of their resources, um, including any of their resources. And today what we're realizing is that a very important part of what an individual can give to help advance a cause or an issue that they care about is their voice or what I call testimony. In other words, um, when an individual cares about an issue in their own community or perhaps in the larger global community, whether it's the environment or homelessness, and they share that um, that issue, bring more people, bring awareness, shine a light on the importance of that issue, they can actually help move the needle in a very important way. And so whether an individual cares about women's and girls' causes or whether they're deeply concerned about an environmental issue in their own neighborhood by using the assets that they have. And those assets are important. They're not just um, whether you can write a large check or uh, whether you can allocate time to volunteer. But even if you have um, a few minutes to post an article on Facebook or share a story on Instagram, all of those things can be powerful in mobilizing more people in your own network, your social capital, your friends, your family, your colleagues, those that you follow or follow you on social media. You can be part of advancing uh, all kinds of causes in your own community. So it means that all of us can be philanthropists, regardless of your income level. All of us have a voice that we can use to make a difference uh, locally and even globally. So the, the traditional way of thinking about time, treasure, talent of ways to support a nonprofit organization, I think very much define the relationship of, you know, the donor to the organization that they're committing to. And, and it's sort of this you know, two-way part of conversation of uh, they need me to volunteer time. They would like me to make a financial donation. I have a special skill I might be able to contribute, whatever that thing is. But this other element kind of broadens that conversation instead of me just being engaged with that charity or that movement, um, I really have to start thinking about my impact on this work outside of those things. I, I, I think that in some cases for some charities, that's um, 
a little bit of an uncomfortable shift. They're actually asking people to become spokespeople for the mission out in the world as opposed to them having it themselves. Do you hear about uh, any pushback or feelings from charities that, boy, if we ask people to give testimony, what if they say the wrong thing and people get the wrong impression? We we lose control. We don't have the message anymore. Is that okay? Is that a, a strength? I think you raise an important point that with um, certainly the advent of social media and technology, uh, this reconfigures the relationship between a nonprofit and its donors, its uh, supporters, its champions, its, its advocates. But I think there's a unique opportunity that's inherent in the challenge you describe, and that's that you can invite your community, this is for the nonprofit, your community of donors and supporters to be a part of telling your story. You can equip them with the tools they need to be successful. And you have an opportunity to listen and gain insight into what it is about the work that you do that is so compelling. Uh, it also means that nonprofits may need to shift gears in terms of uh, being more transparent with their communities and sharing their um, strengths, but also some of their limitations in making a difference. And I think it's also a unique opportunity to learn. So I think from where I stand, I see a lot of the um, possibilities that are inherent in this new uh, way of engaging for a nonprofit, its supporters and its champions. I think the challenge is often how do you staff this work because it's uh, complex and it's, uh, it's sort of real time changing. And also how do you ensure that in this uh, new uh, found reconfigured relationship that your supporters um, can also be successful in the work that they do? Because I think for the most part, when individuals are um, trying to share their story or sharing how a nonprofit is making a difference, they really want to advance the work of the nonprofit. So how can you essentially um, mobilize that work and if there are detractors, essentially uh, donors who may be dissatisfied with the work you're doing, is that an opportunity to learn and improve um, and to then come back and, and share how you uh, and share with them how you have um, kind of moved the needle. And I think it's similar to what we're seeing in other spheres of the whether it's uh, the business community or even government to some degree where that two way street creates lots of channels for um, exchange of information and ideas, but it does put some burden on the nonprofit in terms of monitoring and um, building that uh, network of supporters and champions and figuring out how best to use those uh, newfound uh, social capital assets, whether that's using that network around fundraising, around um, sharing the story more broadly, uh, or whether it's just having those individuals share their message and mobilize their network to get engaged. Right, or the parts of their message that they that resonate with them as a, a supporter of the work. And I think that what you're saying uh, that I'm really taking to heart about listening is, is that this communication is not a broadcast mechanism of we nonprofit and holder of mission now speak to you, the, the great masses out there that support us, tell you what you need to know and ask you to then act on it. But rather, um, we together have this mission. We know some things as professionals in the field that do this work and all the rest of it, but what's important to you about what we do is what you're going to want to communicate. And, and it's okay to have some variance in this supporter believes in this part of our work and really wants to go forward talking about that. A different supporter maybe wants to emphasize something else. Even if we as a nonprofit have a particular campaign or theme we're really trying to push on, 
that act of listening to what's important to you means you've got to be more flexible, more multi-channeled, more uh, hearing. And that is a, a different way for staff to interact with um, their supporters in the community. Do, uh, I, I wish I had a, a great follow-up for how do people do that better? I don't know if that's part of your research and your work to see how people might be implementing that, or is it just that this challenge is so new that we're still trying to figure that out? I think we're still trying to figure it out, but we have uh, been monitoring and studying over the past few years uh, the phenomena that is now crowdfunding. Yeah. In other words, watching how um, individuals are starting up campaigns on GoFundMe and other networks like that on other platforms. And we've all, and giving Tuesday is a very good example of that. And we've seen remarkable growth in those channels. And as we look more deeply into what makes a campaign successful, say on GoFundMe, it's really the authentic communication, the uh, idea that you can connect with donors with your stories. And uh, in addition to the storytelling that is possible, made possible by the, those platforms, there's also the additional piece that uh, in real time you can share uh, data in terms of how much is being raised, but also how those dollars that are being raised are being used. And we saw this especially uh, for those of your viewers who are interested around disasters where uh, people who started campaigns, um, these are the people that are using their voices, they actually shared the stories, not just of how much they were raising, but how their campaigns were helping families uh, during this period of disaster and recovery. But also, uh, in some cases, it was animal welfare and relief and how animals and, and people who had pets were being supported during uh, various hurricanes in 2017. So I think those are very, very tangible examples of how nonprofits can use these because as, as they um, are able to learn from their supporters, uh, the ones who are sharing their stories and their voices, um, at the same time, those uh, supporters are sharing their own uh, authentic stories about how the nonprofits are making a difference. So it's really this two-way street and both um, storytelling and data are very powerful in the uh, testimony component. That when it gets to the um, the elements of authenticity about the supporters, that I think becomes very clear when they're able to tell their own stories. But it does um, then kind of bring another component into giving that uh, I think has shifted some in recent years around more accountability. And if uh, a charity uh, you know sets forth a goal with the um, resources and they want to talk to their their supporters about here's how we're using these resources, some of them dollars, but some of them volunteer time and and other ways of leverage mission um, that we always thought that this was much more important to say we're doing it effectively we know how to do that when it comes to this more testimony thing if it's an individual that's bringing their own personal commitment to it that may not be the most important part of the story does does accountability especially in some of these GoFundMe type areas feel like we're losing something there or is it just a, a another add-on I think accountability is really a new thing in the crowd, a new part of the crowdfunding landscape, because um, one of the, you would say, strengths of these um, types of campaigns is that they're in real time, they're happening quickly, donors are 
giving, those funds are being sent to directly to individuals. But I think the feedback loop is it's all the rest on the campaign itself to then share back uh, what those results have been. I think that is an inherent challenge because it's basically self-regulation at this point. Yeah. Um, and with a lot of nonprofits, the uh, telling the story about impact has also uh, is also something that donors increasingly want. We hear uh, more and more donors want to know that their dollars are making a difference. And I guess what I'd like to propose is that um, with social media, with this testimony component, when a nonprofit has this information, they should be sharing that with their supporters, their donors, so that in turn, those uh, individuals can use their own channels to communicate that story. And that take some of the burden off the nonprofit. They don't have to do that all on their own when they have a donor imp uh, impact stories in terms of how the nonprofit has benefited a community member, sharing it with their supporters. And in turn, there's a part of this that's also a, a donor can tell, I gave, I volunteered, and this is how it changed me. Uh, because we often think about giving in uh, a very simple way. When you give, you make a difference in someone's life. But uh, often we've seen from research that giving actually can transform the donor's life as well. Um, whether it's volunteering where you uh, perhaps make a difference, but also build a relationship with a teen that you're mentoring or uh, with perhaps if you're serving in a particular capacity as a tutor, you're also learning alongside the person that you're mentoring or tutoring. So I, I guess that I feel um, that this new testimony component that we're lifting up and elevating can actually also confer benefits on the giver and not just on the organization or nonprofit that benefits. And you mentioned this example of if, if I was to volunteer time as a tutor, it would have a bigger impact on me than perhaps just writing a check and, and feeling good about that and engaged about it, but not you know as much. And when we talk about that element of testimony to bring social capital to the table as an element here, it isn't just about dollars. And I really think that that's important to say that some people that may not have thought of themselves as a volunteer of time or talent or um, advocacy is another area that I wanted to kind of mention as we're recording this, we're right on the eve of the third uh, women's March, which um, had an amazing amount of participation and impact at its launch. And it, because of the social capital that was leveraged, not just an organization existed and it launched a campaign, but a substantial amount of conversation within community launched a campaign that then kind of created an organization around it. And I think that those are important elements to look at. Um, what are what are the outcomes we're trying to get here? If it's just please give us more money so we can hire more staff, you can do some of that with the social capital of your supporters. But if it's help us build a movement in many ways, some of which may be more money to hire more staff, but others may be in bringing more volunteers to the table, in engaging more people in advocacy style work, it changes the landscape pretty dramatically. Absolutely. And I think for many individuals in nonprofits, they really, and donors to nonprofits, they really want to be part of solving the problem, whatever that problem is. It could be the question of how do we improve educational outcomes in our community? How do we reduce um, homelessness? How do we address criminal justice challenges? And when you start to look at that, those problems through that broader lens, how do we move the needle, uh, then it means that you do want to look at all the assets that you have available to you. Uh, your donors can certainly write checks to support your organization, but they can also help you raise awareness. 
let folks know that, look, we do have a growing problem around a particular issue. You named that issue. Um, let's take women's and girls' issues because of the uh, Women's March. Your donors and supporters can put that organization's work and elevate it so that other people who don't know very much about the organization understand its vitality to a particular community. And so we've had several examples here in Indianapolis with um, uh, women's organizations, including one called Women for Change that started right around the time of the Women's March and has been very successful about elevating uh, issues around women's employment, the barriers they face, but also uh, workplace issues around um, sexual discrimination or uh, harassment at work. And uh, again, the donations are very important, but there's also this bigger piece that uh, a donor can be part of changing the landscape so that this issue is on uh, everyone's uh, radar. And today, um, an individual has so much more at their disposal in terms of in real time sharing why they're giving, how their gift is making a difference, and how this organization is linked to these uh, very important issues. Some of the tools that people are using to spread that engagement are, are, I think, themselves trying to morph as a result of that. So Facebook being sort of the obvious one to mention for a moment, uh, as they got into the idea of, boy, all of these people want to talk about donating, but in order to do that, they often leave Facebook. Let's just integrate it to Facebook so that they stay here to do their donating and talk about it and all the rest of it. Um, I have a concern as somebody working in the field that that's um, shifting the relationship from the charitable mission to a relationship with Facebook. And you know, often the charities, if they're not careful about this, may not be able to have the same level of connection with the donor. They don't get um, information about uh, names, addresses, all the rest of it. They maybe just get a check that shows up, which is better than not getting a check. But some of the platforms themselves are seeing the value of that social capital and trying to figure out how do they kind of cut the charities out of the, the middle of that conversation, or at least it feels like that to me. Do you hear that from others about the platforms trying to become part of the conversation? Well, one very interesting example is colleges and universities, because in the past, individuals might have gone to their college and university website to make a donation to learn about the university. But today, many colleges and universities have kind of self-formed groups um, that exist on Facebook, where alumni groups are convening just themselves without mm -hmm the university being involved or LinkedIn may have different alumni groups that are just self-formed. And so it then means, wow, you know, the university may not be aware of a lot of these or may have to do extra work to monitor how many of these alumni organizations have self-formed on LinkedIn, Facebook, you name it, and how can they be part of that conversation? And some universities have been very intentional about being part of that uh, Kind of shift. Others have created structures that allow them to personally engage with those groups. And, you know, there is one uh, very important example. Harvard has these, they're called shared interest groups, SIGs. And uh, in the 1990s, there were only one or two of those SIGs. Today, there are 200, 300 different ones wow. around, around specific issues. Um, sometimes it's alumni who care about a particular topic, the environment, who formed on their own uh, on Facebook. And so I think for universities, uh, is they're a very good example because they had a very strong infrastructure to support those kinds of alumni groups. And I think that uh, the uh, strength of um, the 
internet today is that you can actually see what's taking place. And then for colleges and universities or other nonprofits, they can adapt to see how they can support that community of donors. Once again, this is an opportunity to learn uh, what your donors care about the most. And let's just stick with the higher education example. If you're seeing, wow, the alumni are very interested in the environment or women's and girls issues. Is there an opportunity for us to create some support for them here at the university and partner with them on some of the work they're doing? And so um, Harvard that I would pick. And there has been a, a clear um, effort to try to engage with alumni, meet them where they are essentially, and tailor the approaches to uh, this innovation. So I think in many ways, we're seeing disruption in philanthropy with technology changing the ways that uh, nonprofits can engage with ultimately with their uh, large network of supporters, but then also uh, recognizing that with that disruption, that means there are opportunities, but also challenges and costs with adapting to this quote unquote new landscape. Well, that's a really interesting point that I hadn't considered before this conversation that you've mentioned the importance of a, a nonprofit if they want to be leveraging the value of that testimony, they've got to be listening more and not just publishing. They've got to really be engaged in hearing from people. But that opportunity to then go, wow, all of these different channels where people are are having a conversation about the work we care about, we could be supporting that based on what we learn from listening. So we may have to do a data poll around our impact to support a, uh, a particular particular um, area or conversation that's happening somewhere where we wouldn't normally have been ready to talk about that part of our impact. We, we maybe were thinking we wanted to have this conversation over here, but this moment of responsiveness to what's already organically happening because those alumni formed a group or that uh, um, civic organization in a particular community is really talking about how this mission impacts them. If the charity is more responsive on the ground with their impact to bring to an existing conversation, it really provides an opportunity in a very different way from you know, sending a, a unsolicited postal mail to everybody in a zip code and hoping for the best. Yes, I think really what we're seeing here, and we um, use this phrase a lot at the Lilly Family School, is that one size does not fit all anymore. And we, uh, in the nonprofit world, really have an opportunity to tailor the approaches to meet donors where they are. And uh, one, I think one very good example is that perhaps in the past, um, alumni groups were organized around geography, the Harvard Club of San Francisco or Indiana, et cetera. And this is true of nonprofits as well. Today, um, a scholar at Boston University, Emily Barman, has talked about communities of purpose yeah. around the communities of place. So nonprofits, uh, local nonprofits, as well as national, regional nonprofits, do have a, a real uh, clear, I would say, new uh, tool to engage donors. And that might involve this notion of donors already organizing themselves. How can you support that work? How can you listen and learn as you go along? And how can you be part of um, enhancing, facilitating, in some cases, even um, helping kind of mobilize that group rather than either uh, missing that conversation or uh, really not even being part of it at all. I, I want to ask you about a slightly different tact in this whole thing, which is different reasons why people engage. And sometimes it's about that passion or a social connection, but sometimes the social connection is a little bit more social and a little bit less mission focused. And I want to throw out the example of the ice bucket challenge here, where um, a relatively underfunded charity um, at um, ALS, uh, um, can't 
can't remember the full name of the nonprofit that, that sponsored it, but um, the number of people that decided to dump buckets of ice water over their head in all kinds of crazy places and ways wasn't so much because they, I, I believe, wasn't so much because they learned about ALS as a debilitating condition and they wanted to contribute money to solving it, but rather look at my fun video that I did and I'm part of the crew that's having the fun video. Yes, of course, I made a contribution too, but I don't know that it was a mission-focused thing as much as it was a social thing, and I think that that's another twist to this is do sometimes people feel like that they're just um, having a social moment around something where the charity happens to be a beneficiary but wasn't the primary driver of the of the decision to get involved? Absolutely, and my background is in economics and we we typically talk about uh, the motivations for giving as being complex people can give for altruistic reasons they want to make a difference in a cause they care about the beneficiaries they care about providing a particular good a public good in a community but they're also self-interested motives for giving um, in other words people may give because they want recognition or in in the case of the ice bucket challenge for fun or because their peers are engaged. It could also be something very um, simple as to avoid uh, social um, disapproval or scorn. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, not all the reasons people give are altruistic and there may be mixed motives. In other words, people can give for a blend of motives. In fact, um, there is a uh, notion coined by an economist at, at University of California, San Diego, G Jim Andrioni, a colleague who uh, talks about uh, kind of this impure altruism where people are giving because they gain benefit from giving, you know, the warm glow idea that when you give, you actually feel better. There's sort of the joy or the euphoria in saying, I made a difference, I gave. So it, you are really giving because you yourself uh, get some joy, some delight, uh, some pleasure from giving. And that's that may also be true around volunteering as well. So I think nonprofits should be aware that the motives for giving are multifaceted and uh, as donors uh, are at different places in terms of why they give and how they get engaged. But even with that understanding, once you engage that donor, once they make that gift or they show up and volunteer, what do you do with them afterwards? It's actually quite similar to what we've seen around disaster giving. Some nonprofits get a huge volume of donations right after a disaster or during a disaster. And then the question is, how do you engage those donors, maybe first-time donors after that? Do you provide follow-up opportunities for them to get engaged and to learn more about the organization? That may be their first time, uh, for example, giving to the American Red Cross or Partners for Health. But once you have them in your uh, tent, which may be a large tent, what do you do with them afterwards? And I think that's the uh, drop-off point often that many uh, organizations may not necessarily have a follow-up strategy to think about how are these donors um, coming to us and what can we do to sustain uh, perhaps their interest over time. It's a really interesting point you raise about uh, the motivations being so multidimensional of why people give. And I think one of the challenges is as people come in from these um, social influencers or affluential people uh, and they make a gift that it's okay for us to recognize that they may not be making a gift because they strongly believe in the mission of the charity, but they're making a gift because their friend asked them to for their birthday. And if we take every single comer as they are now committed to our mission and we are going to email them six times a month and we're going to send them for postal mailings and we're just going to beat them to death to say, here's how you can be more involved and here's how you can do it. I think gauging 
are you really here with us because of what we do? Or were you here with us for another reason and we should just thank you and be ready to move on is a different kind of thinking from uh, this. And I think it's okay to say, you know, if my friend came in because it was a birthday gift from so-and-so, I may want to note that in their record and try that next year again to say, it's so-and-so's birthday again. Would you like to recognize them, you know, with a gift? That maybe is an okay way of staying in touch. But I think giving that power back to the person that came in from one of these testimonial type opportunities to say, why are you here and how do we engage with you the right way is a different way of thinking. Absolutely. And I think there's also this notion of how do you integrate information across channels? Because yeah. today um, they may come to you through Facebook, uh, but through that you could better understand what their interests are, what how they want to be engaged. And you can follow up with a question to that donor and say, you gave this gift in honor of your friend. How would you like us to engage with you going right. forward? Um, so it's, you don't just have to wait to see what their response is. I think um, you can listen across these different channels, including a direct uh, uh, request to say, well, how often would you like us to contact you? How can we uh, share information with you? And I think that is something that we're certainly seeing in the business world, the Netflixes and Amazons of the world. We can learn from them. Uh, often uh, they'll tell you what other people like you have uh, watched mm -hmm. in the few months and so forth, we could use some of those same types of data-driven approaches to say, oh, here, um, some of the other friends who gave for the birthday were interested in being uh, asked for next year's birthday. Would you like to stay on that list? So there are sort of creative and fun ways to actually um, build that relationship with a first time or new donor. And I think we're just starting to um, really explore some of those possibilities in the nonprofit world. And because we were, the nonprofit world is relatively new to this data-driven uh, sets of uh, engagement opportunities, we can learn from how others across different sectors are doing this well. Yeah, there is so much there to unpack, and we have a relatively limited amount of time left to talk about it. Uh, but I do want to ask you uh, on a slightly different tact about um, how this kind of social capital in engagement um, also impacts major donors, because a lot of this, I think we think about in terms of a Facebook campaign, a GoFundMe thing or whatever. But in terms of the motivations of some of those large scale donors, which traditionally, you know, back in the 20th century, uh, you know, the, the, the Lilly family school is named after a philanthropist. You know, I'm sure that there was a conscious decision that the Lilly family wanted to put their name on it as a part of their decision to give. So th that kind of large scale givers making decisions about things um, for, for their reasons, as well as the philanthropic good is part of it. But now I think that there's this element of um, the, the social component of what all other major donors are doing. Um, and some of them are, are being very public about why they're getting into things. Uh, Mark Benioff and Salesforce and this whole thing in San Francisco about housing seems to have sparked Microsoft to do something uh, about housing in the Seattle area, for example. Uh, and I think there might be more of those. Do you, do you think there's an opportunity to study what major donor impact might have from this kind of public testimonial? Absolutely. And I would even say that uh, to some extent, social capital economists have been studying this for a long time. And we know that social capital matters for your success in business or your success in the political world. But for some reason, we've been a bit um, late to the party as it concerns nonprofits, realizing that uh, 
donors at all levels bring with them tremendous social capital. And we see that playing out, especially with major donors, with large philanthropists, where their engagement with a particular issue can induce others to get involved. Uh, one very prominent example of uh, a group like this is Women Moving Millions. And that is a group of women that are giving at least a million dollars to advance women's and girls' causes. And uh, we've seen many prominent uh, female philanthropists and male philanthropists who have really uh, said, you know, uh, this is a very important issue and I'm going to get involved with uh, uh, Melinda Gates and Bill and Melinda Gates in particular, uh, really uh, emphasizing that uh, investing in women's and girls issues is part of the solution to a lot of uh, problems that we face locally and globally. And I think that that's where we see this more directly, where one philanthropist uh, raising this issue can bring others to the table. In the same way, I think we, uh, for the nonprofit community, community to recognize that donors at all levels have those social networks and that social capital that they can leverage to uh, enlarge the, the group of people that are supporting a particular cause. I would even argue that uh, Bill and Melinda Gates um, and through their foundation, but also through their personal testimony, have raised awareness around um, women's and girls' issues and also global health issues, whether it's malaria or um, HIV AIDS and uh, reproductive health as um, an important uh, global development priority. Uh, I think one of the challenges we're we're starting to see as things tip a little bit there with with some of the uh, wealthier donors is not necessarily just that they're going to give testimony to an existing nonprofit organization, but they may actually try to come in and say, well, I have the resources to kind of change this conversation on my own. And now we get into things like the uh, Chan Zuckerberg initiative, um, which is sort of bypassing traditional philanthropy in favor of direct social action with their own wealth. And they talk about it and it's public, but it's still um, a little bit of a different model again about what is that philanthropy if you're spending your own money to solve the problem directly or is it you know a, a new breed of that how do we think about it when some of those major donors decide i i'm going to step in not just with my testimony about somebody else's work but i'm going to drive the train to fix this problem well, I think that you're raising an important point because of the scale of some of the problems that are our challenges that we face, whether it's in housing, homelessness, or public health, global health, education. Um, one of the questions is, well, how do we achieve scale? How do we move the needle? In some cases, it is giving a grant to a nonprofit or a large donation. In other cases, it might be uh, advocacy, as we've talked about. Maybe the goal is actually to get the public sector, the government, to own part of this issue um, here, whether it's early childhood education or the environment. We want more governments around the world to be involved in these issues. And as a uh, an individual, you can actually move the levers on um, in some cases, it's donations. In other cases, it's getting the public sector to be co to collaborate to help solve the problem. A third um, tool in this expanded toolkit is the notion of can we achieve change using investments uh, as a vehicle? And so that's uh, something that many funders, foundations in particular, are starting to take a look at. In addition to their grant making, the five percent of their 
uh, foundation assets that they might uh, put into grant making. What about the 95% and how that's invested? Could that be part of solving the problem? And I think it's an interesting um, set of uh, new challenges for the nonprofit sector is to really think about those uh, three, an expanded toolkit. In other words, it's grant making is one part of that toolkit, but there's also the advocacy component and the investment component as well. And does that become part of a, a testimony side from those organizations that have endowments or funds to give? And, you know, in some cases, of course, it's uh, um, foundation type things, but in others like um, uh, higher education institutions, um, that money is actually, you know, being used to support, you know, endowed chairs or, or other institutional needs. So, but it doesn't mean that it couldn't be raising money in some kind of mission alignment. Does it help them to talk about that socially, to use that as testimony to say we're in investing our resources in these um, you know, mission-oriented results while we're taking some uh, profit off of that to pay for our endowed chair or whatever. Absolutely. And I think we are seeing some really exciting examples. The National Geographic, as one example of very well-established, um, long-standing nonprofit organization, is now moving part of its endowment into mission-related activities. So nonprofits themselves are also in this uh, equation, they have assets that they have not tapped into, including in some cases, their endowments could be part of their uh, mission and how those are invested could be part of advancing social good. So an environmental nonprofit and how it invests its um, endowments could be part of solving uh, environmental concerns uh, locally here in their own communities, but also nationally and internationally as well. So I think that means that uh, we are really in some cases uh, thinking about things quite holistically and comprehensively. But I think it's interesting that it's not just um, philanthropists that can have these kinds of questions and challenges, but even nonprofits themselves. Well, I, I don't know, and we're just about out of time, so I want to kind of wrap up with one more question and then just a chance to have people know how to continue to follow your work. But um, you also uh, are um, part of the research and, and publication of Giving USA, which is, a, I think, a really important um, annual look. Is there um, a moment to think of how testimony impacts what giving looks like? Is that part of a future study? Does this, um, this become big enough now where we really need to say, is there a way to quantify? how many people are making giving choices based on social capital rather than just a, a sort of a, a mission connection or a research that they did that this is the most effective philanthropy to give to? Yes, we are starting to study this um, as part of the national work we do in Giving USA. One example of how we're studying this is that uh, during the last few cycles of um, disaster giving, we actually monitored Twitter conversations around disaster giving to find out what donors were saying about why they were giving, how they were giving, what causes they were supporting. And uh, it was fascinating to learn, as you said, about the complex motivations, but also why donors were choosing the organizations that they were. So part of our quest to better understand how the giving landscape is changing is to collect some of these new data sources, whether those are tracking social media conversations and the content of those conversations more uh, quantitatively, but also studying it qualitatively. But I think in addition to that, tracking how Americans are giving and how those channels are changing, in particular, we are starting to um, look at 
disaster giving as one example, since it's a very concrete uh, sort of finite time period in some cases and really look at the various channels. Are people giving through social media channels? Are they coming into those um, giving opportunities through platforms like Facebook, GoFundMe, and so forth? And to learn a little bit more about the pathways of those donors once they give, um, how are they then engaged over time? Uh, over the last few years, we've, we've also been looking very closely at Giving Tuesday and how giving is changing um, Giving Tuesday, those types of giving days are changing the nature of engagement with uh, organizations and donors. And then finally, um, just last year, we were also looking at the 2016 election and how donors may have shifted some of their giving priorities following that uh, big event. So I think our big picture effort with our understanding and uh, the um, responsibility we have around giving USA and the aggregate picture also means that we have to dig deep into these new um, channels of giving, new ways that donors are engaging and how donors are using their social capital and their voice to engage with the causes and the nonprofits that they care about. Oh, so much more there that I'd love to talk with you more about, but we really are out of time. So I'm going to ask you just um, the, the final question of, because there's all that you just talked about, what's the easiest way for people to stay in touch with your work directly? Anything else from the, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy? Um, how should people keep learning more? Well, the school has an excellent uh, website. I would encourage everyone to visit the website as often as you can. We have um, new research reports that are being released almost every uh, month. Um, this month, we have the Philanthropy Outlook that's going to be coming out um, next week, actually, that prov provides a comprehensive picture of how giving conditions are changing, both uh, in 2019, but also looking ahead to 2020. Another website uh, that's also uh, one that I would encourage everyone to take a look at is a new website that we launched um, in 2017 called Generosity for Life. And it has a wealth of data about philanthropy can be customized down to a local regional level and by causes. And finally, we have a new tool on that website called the Give-O-Meter that allows uh, individuals to customize their own giving uh, and look at how their giving compares to other Americans like them, and then to share those results, once again, the voice uh, with their friends or their family on social media, if they choose um, to encourage others to get involved in philanthropy. So we have um, a wealth of tools, an abundance of tools, actually, that uh, uh, all of your listeners and, and um, supporters can access very easily. I will make sure those are linked in the show notes. And just thank you so much for your time. Dr. Una Osili is the Associate Dean for Research International Programs, many other titles at the uh, Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 